Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We've got week 10 recap ahead of you on this episode. I am Adam Ruffner, and as always, I am joined by Daniel Cohen. Minnesota assumes first place in the Central Division with their big 2-0 road trip through Chicago and Detroit. Carolina gets the season sweep of Atlanta with their big 18-16 win in the AUDL Game of the Week. DC prevails on the road with a Johnny Malks assist at the death to Christian Boxley to secure the Breeze's fifth win of the season. Philly falls to 4-4 four and four and snaps their four-game winning streak. And finally, we'll be recapping Indy's big home win, 28-26 over the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds in an offensive shootout. Just a lot of interesting stat lines to talk about in that one. But first... We should get to the battle atop the Central Division between Minnesota and Chicago. This was kind of a classic game between these two teams at this point. For most Central Division games, it feels like it comes down to a grind fest between the top teams. But for whatever reason, when Mm -hmm. Minnesota and Chicago square up, there's a lot of scoring involved. And what was it on Friday that... DraftKings had set the line at between these two teams. Was it like 40? Did they say? Oh, the over under? Yeah, yeah. The over under was combined. something like 40. Yeah. And which definitely seemed low at the time. I mean, considering the first game between these two teams was 24 21 Chicago, and that was played in pretty windy conditions with a lot of turnovers in Minnesota. So, yeah, I mean. What was it? 40, 47 is what they combined yep. for. Minnesota so. wins 25 to 22. Their offense has its best game of the season, converting on over 70% of their offensive possessions. Brandon Mattis coming through with a huge block in the fourth quarter that kind of sets the wind chill apart down the stretch. And it was just the most complete game for Minnesota this season. They improved to six and one with the win on Friday night. And then just kind of as like a little footnote, they of course go on to beat Detroit the next day to improve to seven and one and take over sole possession of first place in the central division. And suddenly this feels like after 10 weeks of the regular season, that Minnesota is assuming their form atop the central kind of as we anticipated heading into the 2022 season yeah right it feels like we've been waiting for this type of game from them for a few weeks now and i i'll be honest i didn't know they they quite had in them this level of offensive efficiency especially with i think this was the first game they had this specific starting o-line that they were rolling out there was no tony paletto in this game but instead of using Will Brandt a lot in the backfield, it ended up being a very Bevon-heavy touch game. And he had previously been splitting his points fairly evenly, like 50-50 between O-line and D-line, but really found a rhythm early on offense. And just seeing him work with Andrew Roy and the rest of that offense, Josh Klain had a solid game. There was a lot of chemistry that was very apparent from the beginning. And I don't know, watching this game, it reminded me a good amount of the 2021 Central Division Championship game where Minnesota was just like coming out firing and really playing like the more efficient, better team, even though Chicago wasn't playing poorly. Like Chicago did not have a bad game. This was just Minnesota outplaying them in basically every facet. And when we saw that happen in the playoffs last year, Chicago ultimately 
was able to open up the game like halfway through the fourth quarter just on this string of Minnesota errors, but that did not at all happen this game. It was more so Minnesota making plays down the stretch to make sure that they held on for this win. I thought one of the more interesting divisions and how efficient Minnesota's offense looked was that they were only three of seven on Hucks against Chicago on Friday night, and yet they converted the most... It was boring offense. Yeah, but and yet they converted, you know, 20 holds, which is easily their best of the season. I guess they converted 19 the next day in Detroit, but 20 holds against a Chicago defense that has been playing really well the past month, I think is really impressive mm-hmm. for the wind chill. Uh, they go 20 of 21 on red zone opportunities against the Union. They're completing 95% of their 264 throwing attempts, like you said, they're, they're taking a more possession approach, but there's still, I think, in those numbers, you can see that they're still attacking. They're not totally settling into, you know, playing against the Madison zone or something, for example. They're still right. moving the disc downfield, and I think when you watch them play, they're just starting to get to that point of being so balanced that they don't need anyone to take over. They didn't need a eight-goal game out of Quinn Snyder to win this one. You know, they needed... Snyder to make a few plays at the right moment. They needed Cole Jerk to body up and get a huge sky on Nate Goff in the closing moments to sort of seal the victory. You know, they they needed Bevon to do Bevon things here and there, but they didn't need any of their star players to carry because it was such a team effort. You know, you look at their stat lines and it's really impressive how unindividualistic they were against Chicago. You know, there just mm-hmm. isn't really like a stat. I, you know, Bevon has three assists, six goals, 30 of 30. Somebody dropped a throw at some point against him and almost 400 yards of total offense. He's obviously standout. But aside from that, there's just, there's like eight other players who you could say they had a really good game that game, you know? On it offense. was also like... Uh, yeah, and on D-line, on D-line too, it was another one of those, like, Abe Coffin just quietly leads this D-line with a lot of touches and just sure throws the whole length of the field, where he also is just not one of those guys that does a lot of flashy stuff, but he's exactly what this D-line has needed. And another super efficient game from him. 22 of 22 completions. I think he also had a, a dropped throw, so technically not... Perfect completion percentage, but another three assists to his stat line for the season. He's also a guy that they can still cross over to offense from time to time. So it's it's a really well-oiled machine when all the pieces are working like they did on Friday night. And it's cool to see Minnesota really coming into their own at this point in the season. This was, I think they thought of this as like more or less a must-win game. Like they they clearly wanted this. Uh, very badly. And Chicago, not to say they didn't want it, but I don't think Chicago really cared too much about being undefeated. Like, I don't think that was the motivator. I think they're just, that was more of like a byproduct of how they've been playing and this more laid back, fun culture that the team seems to have. I think maybe Minnesota took advantage of that a little bit on Friday night. And I still don't think this is like a huge setback for Chicago either. Because, like I said, they didn't play a bad game. They were 65% on their O-line conversion rate. Uh, two of seven on breaks, which was not was great. But their, their D-line but seven, back came back. But seven break opportunities. Like, yeah, they never really had much of a chance defensively. Like, Minnesota was just very clean on offense. It was a very clean game offensively for both teams. But, yeah, definitely a, a slight dip in the D-line 
conversion rate compared to their previous couple games. And in their previous couple games, they had these like late game momentum swings from that D-line that Minnesota just didn't let that happen in this one. But I, I still think these teams are very evenly matched in a lot of ways and hoping for a, a likely playoff matchup between these two teams. I think it's really interesting that both games kind of came down to which team could perform best out of dead disc scenarios. In that first game, it was because of the wind. And then in Friday night's matchup, it was because Chicago started to do roller pulls towards the end of the fourth quarter and just try oh, to yeah. see if they like could the get... entire Yeah, they were in desperation mode like but, that whole quarter. And Minnesota was handling all of them. Yeah, Rami Paus had a fantastic assist across field, almost another cutty in uh, to an open Winchill player late in the game. Like Minchill, Winchill were just very good at emerging from those kind of pesky union drop disc uh you know, zone for a point or two, switch heavy flurries that they like to run on teams. I mean, Austin fell victim to it a couple weekends Mm -hmm. ago. Minnesota, given how much they've kind of struggled to convert efficiently on offense, it felt like there might be an opportunity there for Chicago, but Minnesota's showing that they're really starting to hit their stride together. It really felt like, okay, this is how all of this works now. You know, they they really showed you the blueprint for, this is how Minnesota becomes a championship weekend level team. You know, they they hold out on offense. They put up points on you. They can do it in a variety of ways. And then their defense is very good at identifying its matchups, is very good at communicating. There isn't really a standout player. You know, Dylan DeClerc paces the team a lot in blocks, but they get blocks from a variety of sources, as shown by the play of uh, longtime veteran Brandon Mattis this past weekend as well as Rocco Linehan playing really well for the team just in coverage. You know, Minnesota has a lot of options defensively just to sort of make you aware that they're there. You know, they're just very good at bringing mm-hmm. pressure, I think, generally. And even without one of their top defenders in Colin Berry and with Jeff Weiss still having an incredible game again for Chicago, he's, he has five goals and 446 receiving yards for the Union in Week 10. But... <laughs> You know, they were able to make those stats hard. It felt like Weiss really had to work to get that. And for as good a games as Kyle Rutledge and Pavel Giannis and Eli Artemakis had for the wind chill, it did feel like Minnesota, especially in kind of the last two-ish quarters, like just before half and then in the second half, they were able to get in Chicago's head a little bit. You know, just like get them a little bit more out of rhythm and make them more of that. We have to just take shots downfield to keep this offense going. Yeah, right. I, it did feel like Chicago had to work maybe the hardest they've had to work against any defense so far this season. I'm curious what your takeaway is. Cause this is like the first time we've really seen Minnesota, I guess, approaching their ceiling or what we think their ceiling might be this season. Like is, is this game enough in your mind, to for for Minnesota to leapfrog Chicago in the power rankings, like do you now consider Minnesota the favorite to win the division? I think so right now, but you know Chicago is still without Paul Arders. He's their best offensive player from a pure talent perspective. Um, I'd like to see what happens when they put him in, and you get a 
rotating carousel of Weiss, Artemakis, Ross Barker, and Paul Arter's upfield, and Jack Shanahan, and whoever else you want to play along, or Pavel Giannis too, probably, Kyle Rutledge, Mm -hmm. see what happens with Sam Kaminsky. Like, that is a formidable offense. So I, I still think Chicago deserves their respect as the reigning divisional champs, but... This is all a long-winded way to say, yeah, I think Minnesota is showing the fruits of their labor, so to speak. You know, this is this is what they're capable with the additions that they got in the offseason with the way that they've been plug and playing and labbing and not quite settling on any sort of lineup. This is sort of what they get. They get a lot of different pieces and a lot of different solutions to address good teams. And I think that you saw that Chicago was still able to punch, but Minnesota could you know, scrap some of the offensive possessions for Chicago and get late game breaks and pull away, you know, like the wind chill had an ability to compete towards the end of the game in a way that they didn't last year in the playoffs, right? Like this is the cosmic mm-hmm. inversion of that game where all Minnesota had to do in both games is just hold out. Last year, they fell apart. This year, they looked, you know, completely cool, calm and collected in the last five minutes of that game. You know who I like on Minnesota? Who I I don't know his story, but Michael Paul Krennic. Paul Krennic. Where where did he come from? He's a University of Minnesota deal? player. He's a second year player. They've been hyping him a lot in the preseason. Uh, he's a big body. I think he's good in the air. He's really de- developing some nice in rhythm flick throws, and I think they're yeah still figuring out where they like to put him. He's a bit of a Quinn Snyder replica, I think. He's, mm. you know, he's... But he's got throws. Like, like he, he dropped a hammer for a score. He had yep. a nice huck to Bivon, I think. I was going to say, I think the player that Khan deserves a shout-out that's getting lost in the shuffle a bit, especially on offense for the Swinchill team, is Michael Jordan. Um, he is, what, in his fifth season, sixth season with the team at this point? He's never been a primary, second, or even really third option for this team. He's always been a fill cutter, but he is playing some of his best ultimate lately. And he just, he always seems to make a play when they need it right now, especially this season. He's very good at just cleaning things up when they need Mm -hmm. that little release look, when they need like a little wiggle free goal in the red zone. He just seems available. His throws are becoming a little bit more refined. And again, he's played in the system so long. He just has a rapport with everybody. And so there isn't really a bad look for him. You know, he he understands when the continuation throw is available. He understands when to just sort of dump and cycle back upfield. I just, I really like the way that he's playing as just, again, like that cleaner fish glue connector piece for this windchill offense. And ditto, I think, at times for uh, Marty Adams. I know they've been spelling mm, yeah. him on both lines, but he's been really, really impressive wherever he plays for Minnesota. Yeah, it's just like they have this this lineup of these depth guys that can fill in. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where we look at their lineup week to week and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces and then trying different guys on their offense. But at the same time, like, yeah, when guys miss games, you need these lower guys on the depth chart to step up and have big games and when they're you know when they're 15 to 20 guys are playing like another team's you know five to ten guys potentially that's extremely valuable um i do wonder how the offense changes if it does at all when tony paletto comes back in the lineup because he is a guy that 
commands a lot of touches in the Minnesota backfield. And it was pretty well distributed this past game against Chicago. It was a lot of Andrew Roy just being more of a pure quarterback for this team. But like I said, Bivon was second on the team in completions. Actually had 30 completions to Roy's 41. And I don't know. I I think what I speculated before this game that maybe the Paleo absence simplified things a little bit more in the Minnesota backfield. Um, Roy also had five throwaways, so it wasn't like he was perfect on the night, but I don't know. Do you think there's anything to that when you like remove a couple pieces, maybe things get a little bit cleaner in a way? I think what's gotten cleaner for them is that they've really just moved towards a short and mid range game offensively. I mean, you look at their huck attempts ever since like, the beginning of June, and they've basically been under 10 every game. They took a lot against Minnesota and then against Detroit, but those were blowout games where I think they were just kind of putting the disc up. But in their closer matches, this Minnesota team, I think, is really feeling a kind of mid-range game for themselves. Like I say, with players like Marty Adams and Michael Jordan, they're really adept throwers, even if they're not necessarily powerful throwers. And so Mm -hmm. I think when they have you know, these options in sort of the the post-Josh Klain QB1 era where he's now a part of a more decentralized distribution force of throwers that you see all these guys like Andrew Roy and Tony Paletto and Will Brandt who might not have, you know, division-topping power but can all make amazing pacer throws. I think you see just an ability for Minnesota to find viability no matter who kind of rotates into that space. I think, yeah, you're onto something that it's almost like if one of them is absent, it allows the other three to stay in rhythm. But when they have sort of all four of Klain, Brandt, Roy, Paletto, there's just almost too many mouths to feed given how high volume mm-hmm. throwers all of them are. Right. Right. And like you, you want to keep them all in rhythm, but you just, can't and so i I, again wonder if they're becoming a very good continuation team too and so you don't want them to really any one of them have like a 50 plus touch game right now you you saw against chicago where what did roy have 30 odd completions and he was leading he had 41 was the team lead and he had five throwaways and it felt like you know he's insisting a bit too much given how balanced and efficient the rest of the offense was performing right like it feels like Mm -hmm. they kind of want to get away from the high volume touches of yesteryear and more into this everyone has 30 to 40 yeah yeah i i could see that working out well for them and i like i like will brant's sort of adapted role as more of like a He's like just much more of a cutter this year than he was last year. He was very much in the handler set a lot of the time. And I, I think his size is good downfield. And he's just one of those continuation throwers that can get the disc downfield after setting up the cut. Well, again, they're all kind of good motion passers. Even Klain, he's good in motion. Yeah. I think that Minnesota's finding that more and more when they get into transition on offense. They're almost like DC in a way right now where one through seven can all be pretty good throwers if they just get their looks. Like, Mm -hmm. again, Michael Jordan has been in rhythm for at least a month. Quinn Snyder is a pretty darn good thrower. Paul Krennic is emerging as a thrower. Devon is, of course, a very established thrower in this team. You know, like, they have a lot of different ways they can attack you, and I think that they're finding that 
when they get the disc upfield, when they kind of get it out of a backfield set and allow it to sort of move between the parts, that they're finding a lot more and more success. Right. Yeah, I, I'm just excited to see them going forward. And, and like, if this offensive line changes much at all, like if Paletta comes back and, I don't know, maybe they just don't want to mess with what's working and they try to keep these seven guys together a lot of the time. So I, I don't know. They're still going to have, like, stuff to figure out down the stretch, but it's great to see them finally put together the complete game that they were able to. I didn't want to say that they should not have Tony Paletto in the lineup because I think Paletto has still been playing really, really well for them this year. And it just seems like it's almost like one of the four main throwers on their offense almost needs to take a de-emphasized role in order for everything else to work, in order for them to get enough touches upfield to a Jordan or a Quinn Snyder or a Bivon. But... I wanted to ask you a question about Chicago's offense, and I was talking about this with somebody else over the past couple of days. Do you think that their offense this year has a higher ceiling than it did during last year's semifinals run? Because I sort of do. You know, with the way that Weiss and Artemakis have been playing, even without Arters, they just seem so explosive at certain times. I mean, when Artemakis was just running wild in the open field on Minnesota's defense in the first half, it looked like the windshield didn't have any answers for him. You know, and we talked about Jeff Weiss's stat line. This is like, what, his third or fourth 400-yard receiving game of the year? He's been just Mm -hmm. so impressive for them. As good and as efficient as Chicago was last season, you know, they set an offensive efficiency record at the time in 2021 as a team. It feels like this union team is just a little bit more volatile, dangerous. I don't know how to say it. They yeah, no, dangerous is a good word. I I agree. I think they. I think what what has raised their ceiling is just their their aggressiveness this year and those will that willingness to take deep shots, especially from those continuation cutters. Like I think Ross actually leads the team in completed hucks this year, if I'm not mistaken, with nine. And yeah, we see Artemakis taking deep shots of his own. We see it from Weiss. And it's it's that aggressiveness that was very absent from the team last year, where everything felt like it was all about limiting turnovers. They just wanted to protect the disc at all costs. And they finished as the second worst team in terms of hucks completed per game last year. And that contrasting to Minnesota, where... Like we talked about, we saw them only complete, what what was it, three of seven hucks in this past game. I wonder if that limits their ceiling a little bit. I think last year we might have seen a little bit more of their hucking game come through. And a lot of that was from their continuation cutters of Cole Jurek and Nick Vogt, like always striking deep off of those continuation cuts. And without him, I think they they lose a little bit there. And so I think generally when I think of when I think of teams offenses, like the the ability teams have to like shift their offense between possession based and aggressive, you know, deep looks, continuation shots that that I think makes for the most dangerous offenses in the league. I think typically you're right. But getting back to my comparison with this Minnesota team to D.C., I think that maybe limiting some of their just standstill hucks is good for this Minnesota team right now. Like, I don't think that they're 
best form last season was their kind of deep look offense. I think in the playoff game, it was really successful. But I think at other times during the season, it was kind of hit or miss. And I, I sort of liked this. But they had of... they had both, though. Like, my point is they they could go to either approach, depending on, like, what the game was. But it, was, it made them was inconsistent like. at the end. Like, I think that that's what ultimately failed them in the playoff game was that they didn't have an identity to lean back on. They weren't sure if they were this, you know, up-tempo, let's get the disc downfield to Jerk and Vote and Bivon and Charles Weinberg, or are we, you know, the weave you know, Will Brandt, Andrew Roy, Tony Paletto offense. Like, I felt like because they didn't know how to hold in those last five points, they they sort of collapsed against a Chicago team that was so firm in its identity. Whereas, you know, this season it feels like they know that their best offense is when they're kind of this four-headed dragon of offensive throwers. And I, I think you see them having a higher ceiling this year. Like, I think that they are more. I think the thing that has always befuddled this Minnesota offense has been its efficiency. I think that they've always been talented. They've always had the pieces, but they haven't always known how to play with those pieces. And I think that you're seeing the windshield kind of figuring that out finally. Maybe. You know, it is maybe game. Yeah, it, right. I know. It's like, yeah, we're pulling all this stuff from mainly one game and I mean of course what we saw from them last year and in other games this year but yeah it's hard it's hard to know because this was their best game of the season just exactly like how they how they take that momentum and run with it it is it is the most offensive holds they've had in a game 20 since June 22nd 2019 which was the indoor game against Indianapolis so Oh, that was a fun game. Yeah, but, you know, it, it sort of speaks to the point of when the wind chill do sort of maybe disengage a little bit from some of their, you know, deep look historical tendencies that they they are pretty darn efficient. And, you know, they put up 25 points on the road and then 33 the next day, but they were hucking it a little bit more against Detroit because second game of a back-to-back against Mechanics, you're going to let it fly. Um, yeah, they can do it. But we should move on to the other big Central Division matchup from the weekend. Uh, Indianapolis, excuse me, Pittsburgh at Indianapolis. Indianapolis winning the game 28 to 26. Super thrilling game. If you have a AUDL.TV subscription, I would highly recommend watching the entirety of the Pittsburgh at Indy game. It's really thrilling. There's just a point in the second half where it feels like both teams just start trading huck looks on offense. Um, just lots of highlights. Max Shepard and Thomas Edmonds came to play for the Thunderbirds, but it wasn't enough against the home team Alley Cats, who had maybe the best all-around performance ever from Cameron Brock. And I say that as somebody who has the utmost respect for the league leader all-time in goals scored in this league. You know, he went 24 for 24 on throws. He finished with over 600 yards of offense. Uh, he had eight goals, two assists, and was just doing the thing that he does best, which is always be available in the end zone or getting the disc into the end zone. You know, he finishes plus 10 on the day in a very close divisional game that Indianapolis basically had to have to keep their edge in third place in the Central Division. I don't know. It's just, I think sometimes we forget about how freaking good this guy is and what makes him a legend is his ability to just be consistent and show up every cut, every point, every game. 
You know, like he just does not relent. Anytime you turn your back on him, he's going to the end zone. Like the amount of the hundreds of times he has scored goals in this league because somebody takes an eye off of him for a second and he has such an Mm -hmm. understanding of this offense that he's just scoring it. Like he just did that against Pittsburgh again. He's top 10 in the league in goals and receiving again. He's in his mid-30s. He retired a year and a half ago or whatever it was. It doesn't matter. He just comes back and he plugs back in and he's playing better than ever. For an indie team that is five and three, and honest to God, if they have Travis Carpenter, they'd be seven and one. Like, what is going on with this Alley Cats team right now? They're playing really well, <laughs> especially on offense. They also didn't even have Keegan North in nope. this game, which didn't I matter. did not know that was happening. But yes, Cam Brock, I think goals can at times have a bit of randomness to them. Yes. Like the yeah. actual guy that finishes off the drive, maybe someone caught a huck on the warning track and just gave a little dishy and that guy got the goal. But with Brock, they don't feel random. Like I, he is so fun to watch because his timing is always perfect like in the like this offense in rhythm I think so many guys like like Levi Jacobs and Cam Brock and Rick Gross they have such a good understanding of the spacing and Brock especially of like when to time those cuts after those initiating looks or even just like in the normal flow of their offense like when to when to strike deep when to strike like towards the sideline in the red zone it it never feels as though he's like cutting anyone off ever it feels like he has the room to work at all times and then you also see his throws from time to time like yeah that really nice crossfield look uh i think it was to levi jacobs at one point and yeah all these guys can throw indoors of course but yeah it's it's like cam brock's cut timing continues to impress me at this stage in his career luke conieris has has to be considered i think in a most improved conversation i don't know if he would be a finalist or something but his evolution in year two for the sally cats team especially given the absences that they've had in their o-line or the new pieces and everything that they're kind of trying to integrate he has been so good for them lately i you know if you would have told me he'd be completing around 50 throws and averaging upwards of 500 yards a game for them i'd that would have made me kind of open my eyelids a lot before the season. And yet he looks so comfortable in this offense for them, both as a receiver at times, but mostly in the backfield as a distributor, it really feels like he's sort of taken over the role vacated by Carpenter's injury. And Indy's been able to just sort of continue to click, you know, other than that road game at Minnesota, Indy has 15 or fewer turnovers in every other game this season, you know, in seven games. They are a team that understands itself. They know when to take shots. They they are willing to turn it over on defense at times to can keep sort of a, an attacking mindset. But on offense, this team doesn't make bad mistakes, it feels like. You know, how often do you see Indy really turn it in their backfield? I know that I, I'm saying this knowing that they've had fourth quarter collapses this season, but generally speaking, <laughs> this Indy team is very, very good offensively at not just scoring, but making the right kinds of mistakes when it does falter, it does run into sticky situations. I'm going to bring up what you like to bring up a lot, and it's it's the fact that they still haven't won against a, a non-Detroit, oh, non-Pittsburgh right. opponent in the last two years. And the rest of their schedule, they go to Chicago this weekend, then they go to Madison, then they host Minnesota, 
and then they go to Atlanta. So Chicago, Madison, Minnesota, and then Atlanta. How many of those games do you think they can realistically win? I think they need to win two somehow in order to lock up the third seed. I think if they get to seven wins right now, that would give them the third seed in the final playoff spot in the Central Division because if they get two wins, one of them's got to be against Madison. And I think that is a, a winnable game for Indy given Madison's health and how they've been playing versus how the Alley Cats look right now. Um, but, you know, getting a win against Minnesota, Chicago, or Atlanta is going to be very, very, very difficult. Um, like you say, Indy is still searching for a quality win for the first time since 2019. But I I don't know. I, I like Indy right now. I like how they're playing. They look good. They passed the eye test, especially indoors at home. Um, I know they got blown out on yeah. the road at Minnesota, but that was a weird travel roster for them. They did have a lead after the first quarter, but it was one of those windy and defense games that is so in the wheelhouse for this windchill team right now. Um, it, it just felt like an anomaly. And when you look at how Indy performed in that game compared to every other game this season, it is. Um, I, they were the better team against both Madison and Chicago in two of their three losses for, you know, three and a half quarters. And now I'm t- stealing one of your favorite arguments, which is, they're great for a half. They're, They're three, three, three and a half quarter team. Yeah, yep. three and a half quarter team. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I Indy again is playing like the third best team in the central, and I just really like the direction that they're headed. I'm not certain what their ceiling is really. I don't know if they win against Chicago or Minnesota in a playoff game, but I think how they play in the upcoming matchups is going to be really, really telling for them. You know they. This is a prove-it moment for an indie team that I think has been searching for that opportunity a bit the past two seasons. You know, they they think of themselves as a perennial playoff contender in the Central Division, and they've come up close with no cigar against Madison and Chicago already this season. Can they avenge that in the home stretch, or is it just going to be more heartache for Indy? Are they going to continue to be the little brother to Madison, Minnesota, and Chicago as they've kind of always been? Yeah, I, I think I just worry about them a bit playing outdoors. And they their only like outdoor road test so far has been that Minnesota game. But like you mentioned, it was kind of a weird indie roster. So we haven't seen their top roster play on the road against any non-Pittsburgh or non-Detroit team. So basically Minnesota or Madison being those two other teams in the division. I, yeah, I it's it's very much a prove it week for them going to Chicago and these next few games that they have on their schedule. Because at this point, yes, I'm totally sold on them being a very efficient, both offense and defense playing at home indoors. We just haven't seen really how they will, how they'll do like against that top level of competition on the road. And I'm, I'm still a little skeptical of them, but I agree. It's hard not to like, how they've been playing in recent weeks. And the fact that they just put up 28 points against Pittsburgh without Keegan North, probably their best offensive player, I think that speaks a lot to their depth and just their overall offensive system that has been clicking all year. And let's now move to the South Division and the battle 
between the first place Carolina and second place Atlanta Hustle. Hustle looking for their first win in three tries against Carolina could not get it on the road. Flyers prevailing 18 to 16 and another defensive masterpiece for Carolina. They now have held Atlanta to what is it? Uh, 34, 48 goals in three games this season and their season sweep against the hustle. Uh, just again, I, I think one of the more top down impressive in interdivisional defensive performances I've seen in the course of a season against a team of Atlanta's caliber. You know, they had their highlights. The hustle did Bobby lay was making it rain in the second half. <laughs> he was is. feeling himself. He was, yeah. he was feeling it, but that was kind of it. That was all the Flyers were really allowing. Any time the hustle tried to work it or any time that they couldn't just get a huck kind of in transition or in a fast break or in a breakaway, Carolina was constricting and they were forcing turnovers and they were running off of it. And you were getting that bewildering weave that the Flyers D-line handlers can do to opponents this season. And once again, Carolina prevails they improved to eight and one on the season. They essentially, I think, all but lock up the divisional title. They they earned a playoff spot, and I think that they need one more win to. Well, I guess they would need to beat Austin. Or no, they won the season series against Austin, so they would just need one more win to lock up the South Division title in twenty twenty two. But just I think wait, another, is that right? Or do yeah, they, they have the title. They're nine and one. Austin is six and three. Yeah, but if Atlanta's uh, at best, three, yeah. at best they they could go nine and three, and yeah, Carolina has a tiebreaker no, over true. both Austin and that's Atlanta. That's true. So Carolina should have the divisional title. You're right. Yeah, I apologize. Congrats, congrats, Carolina. Yeah, congrats to Carolina. <laughs> I mean, they win their season series against Austin and Atlanta. They hold serve. They, you know, defend. Ascent. I, they didn't win the division last year, but given how they performed in the playoffs and just given how they've beaten elite competition the past season and a half, it feels like it's the Flyers' division to lose going forward, and they've been playing that way. You know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't a super clean offensive performance for the Flyers, but Jacob Fairfax is potentially going to earn the disc back every single time he makes a mistake. He <laughs> At least I love that he's. Game. I love how much he's been doing that all season. I think has he had at least one block in every game? Like I, I feel like there's been at least two. one play in every game. He's had three straight games. I know just anecdotally where he has made a mistake and then made a highlight reel block within like five throws just to get the disc back for the Flyers. I know in Tampa he had one where he turned it on the goal line and then Tampa tried to fast break it the other way. And Fairfax, just like a heat-seeking missile, destroyed a disc in space. This last game against Atlanta, he made a mistake in the first quarter, made a layout interception to get it back. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's just, he's a the terminator zone. whenever something goes wrong for him. And then, you know, I I kind of didn't mean to, like, tweet dunk on you online, but you made a point about how Atlanta had the benefit of Halsmeyer and ramsey at the end of quarters and then at the end of the third quarter on saturday night in a close game fairfax just monster dunks over a pack of people for a huge score for carolina it feels like when carolina doesn't play efficiently now they sort of adopt a mode that i think only new york can really do which is just letting their stars make highlight plays on you like that's kind of what carolina can resort to at times 
that third quarter buzzer beater once again it's the second straight game between carolina and atlanta where that third quarter buzzer beater just sparked so much momentum because it i mean carolina got a couple breaks but i think i think all of their breaks happened in the first half and atlanta was hanging around in the second half but they were even clawing their way back in the third quarter they got a break to make the game 12 to 11 and then they had the disc uh, with a chance to tie the game at 12s. And they like they could have done that going into the fourth quarter. It could have been a tie game. But then there was a huck throw away. And then Henry Fisher at the other end had a huge block in transition. And then it was just like that. I, I don't know. They got the disc back with like 10 seconds left. And eventually they threw it up to a pile of guys in the end zone. And Fairfax came down with it. But it was just like a big blow it it felt like just morally to the the Atlanta offense and I I think that again like I said that like that was the turning point in my mind where it was just one of those late game Carolina sequences that is just so difficult for any team to bounce back from when they're so close to tying up the game heading into the fourth and you know making it a zero zero game again you just have to win that last quarter but instead it's a two goal game and yeah, they were just never able to to overcome that late deficit. But huge credit to Fairfax, and he didn't he have a drop on like their first possession of the game? That or something was like that. That was the turnover I was referring to. He was twenty of twenty on throws. He had one. Yeah, it was game. It was a he... weird. It was a weird drop. But yeah, it felt like he just immediately corrected that and well, obviously continued that throughout the game. And last, he's like a human reverse card because actually now I'm remembering it last year when Reese Bergeron made that like block of the year in the week 12 game of the week, that epic double overtime battle between yeah. the Flyers and the Breeze. Reese Bergeron made that huge flying block. DC was driving it back. Jacob Fairfax made a head high block of his own and he got up so high that when he landed, he had to take an injury timeout because he kind of knocked right. the wind out of himself. Like, he negated the block of the year last year. Like, he just does this stuff. Like, that's just in him at this point. He led the game in receiving yards uh, among all players. Henry Fisher was second. And again, the Flyers' two bigs just kind of show you why this Carolina team is so potent. You know, Atlanta did about as good of a job as you can disrupting the otherwise uh, amazing Carolina backfield. You know, they... The hustle zone did work at times. They did get them out of rhythm. They forced a couple of weird reset turnovers, which you normally never see from the Flyers' backfield. Um, But with the bigs playing the way that they did for Carolina's offense, it just didn't matter. When they needed a a release valve look deep or they needed a buzzer beater, Fisher and Fairfax were there for them. You know, the the first score of the game was Eric Taylor just airing it out to Fisher running deep. Like they they have that option just available a lot of times this season. I I also worry like this was the second game in a row where Atlanta did have some opportunities to to punch right back yeah. at Carolina and punch in breaks, but I'm a little worried about the Atlanta D line. Like it is the you D-line compare it to D line, yeah, the D line offense. You compare it to D line offense like Carolina's. And they can just look so seamless at times because they have a lot of guys that can handle the disc really well. And Atlanta, on the other hand, I mean, they were two of nine 
on their break conversions in this game. And one of those, I think, came after a timeout. And yeah, other than that, it was just like some weird forced throwaways, like in the red zone. Um, yeah, just like taking shots when they didn't need to. And there, there never seemed to be like a sense of offensive rhythm that could be established with that D-line. And it's, yeah, it's now the second game in a row that we've seen them against Carolina really struggle to convert breaks. And I just, you compare that to the other elite teams around the league and you, you trust, at least I, I trust other D-line offenses a lot more at this point than I trust Atlanta's. Four for 19 in their last two games against Carolina, the hustle defenses and converting. Yeah, that's not going to work. It's not going to win you games. Opportunities. That's that's bad. And like it's it bad, bad when you watch it. It was a little frustrating watching the hustle get some late game opportunities against again a really good Carolina offense. You know, Justin Burnett mm-hmm. made a couple of amazing plays for the hustle. I like him a lot. Second half, and they just squandered yeah. them. You know, they're they're throwing these hucks in transition into space when the Flyers defenders they're going up against again are Jacob Fairfax and Henry freaking Fisher. Like, why are you testing the two biggest players on the field deep with your D line? Oh, I just, one of the possessions late too, that I think Kenny Taylor got a, a hand yeah. or something and the hustle defense picked it up. They had a timeout in the fourth quarter and they just didn't burn it. And they ended up kind of throwing it away in the red zone. I think again, Atlanta was seven for 12 on red zone opportunities. And I feel like a chunk of those were D line mistakes in the red zone. It's just, right. It was a confusing performance for a team as talented as Atlanta. Cause you, you, if you just watch like the highlight version of how the hustle played and you see Bobby lay just turning into Peyton Manning (laughs) out there, it was so funny. I was messaging with a friend and he sent a message about how, I don't know why he said it, but he said Lay was looking a little washed towards the end of the first half. And like at that moment <laughs> was when Bobby Lay threw like seven straight assists for Atlanta and was just couldn't yep. miss from deep. He was just doing those huge OI flick benders that should They're so be patented nice. under his name. They carry the, the RPMs on them kind of don't make sense because when you normally see those go up from throwers, they stall out a bit. His just continue to tumble into like the back corner. They don't lose any kind of velocity or momentum. They're just they're so good and like well Atlanta- he he has he has that throw, but the throw I love even more is when he gets the disc and like fakes a big OI backhand, but then launches an IO backhand like on the inside of the defender. You know what I'm talking about? Like he'll it's like a it's just an awkward release that you don't see any other player attempt really, maybe besides like buzzer beater situations at times. But yeah, just like gets that inside throw off and then just bombs these beauties to the back of the end zone. I know he had one of those in this past game, in addition to all of his super pretty OI flick hucks. Parker he's a very fun thrower to watch. Parker Bray might have had the throw of the game, though, with his hammer. That thing. Oh, I love that one, on too. A but, you know, I wanted to bring up a point that uh, announcer and former New York head coach Brian Jones brought up on the broadcast, which is that I don't know if I like Draco upfield for Atlanta right now. I don't know if that's... Mm working and you look at the stats and you just see how they're playing and it 
it's it's not really like it worked against Atlanta or excuse me Austin I think in week four I think that's when you saw how potent the Atlanta offense could be with John Stubbs and Bobby Lay and Draco and just attacking the deep space the deep space from every angle excuse me but something about lining Draco upfield it feels like you know exactly where the hustler are going to go with the disc and I feel like that's why you saw kind of a lot of late stall Bobby Lay deep looks, you know, they weren't necessarily getting the disc to Draco and getting into continuation downfield. It was a lot of just, Hey, we need to go over the top. You know, I think, I think what, what I liked about it against Carolina, the second game was the fact that they had John Stubbs and Max Thorne also basically playing similar roles to Draco as those initiating cutters that can shoot off of those cuts. I think it's a problem when you don't have those other guys and it's just Draco as like the primary downfield shooting threat. And I think that's, that's why we saw lay forced into those opportunities just because there wasn't a ton of motion that could be created with the core of cutters that they had. I just, I still think it might make the most sense to have Draco in the backfield and get him as many touches as you can as close to the beginning of the possession as possible because you saw that again when they don't get it to Draco in like a easy kind of one two three look out of the gates they Atlanta doesn't have an ability to sort of shift into a secondary offense like if the hustle aren't running set plays they sort of grind to a halt again 48 goals in three games against Carolina that's just not good Even if, even if they were efficient, that's just not good. That's not enough goals to win. Yeah, I didn't realize Draco also had zero completed hucks. I think he maybe attempted a cup, one or two, maybe that I remember. But first time all season that he failed to complete a huck. Yeah, and I again, I just think that the Flyers know what to expect when Atlanta lines Draco up like that in an upfield set. They kind of know how to contain him in that space. Whereas in the backfield, when he can release into a power position, I just feel like he might be a little bit more potent. I don't know. Like I, I was all aboard shifting Draco upfield and with the more throwing talent that they added during the off season, sort of loosening up roles a bit, but watching the results so far, I, I don't know if it's working yet. Like, I don't know if I, I like this version of the offense. It just feels like they changed out Draco taking all the deep shots to Bobby Lay now taking all the deep shots, but it's still the same hustle O. Yeah, I I would say it's more personnel dependent for me. Like, may, maybe you're right in this game. It would have been better to have him more so in the backfield without those other downfield cutters that can shoot, like John Stubbs and Max Thorne. But I think, like, at full strength offense, I like the idea of just having those dynamic throwers okay. downfield in addition to Bobby Lay in the back. We're in week 10 and we have seen the quote unquote full strength offense of Atlanta, maybe twice. Like we can't, we're past Once, really. <laughs> yeah. And I just think we're past that point. Like we can't say like when they get it all out there. Like, I think that that's Atlanta's flaw too right now. Like we've seen basically a different lineup for them in all seven of their matchups so far this season. Yeah, that's a different issue. But yes, I I agree. That'll be the more pressing issue heading into this huge weekend ahead of them in Texas where they play Dallas on Friday and then the featured game uh, on Saturday against Austin. 
Yeah, they'll definitely have to use that Dallas game as a tune-up because I think for sure the hustle for as talented as they, as they are of all the championship weekend kind of favorites I have in my head, I'm most worried about them. Like if yeah, they had, it's, if there was it's a, the ever-changing lineups. If there was me. a third seed in the South right now and Atlanta like got the two seed, I would be worried about them in that opening round, maybe more than any other two seed. You know what I'm saying? Like, Again, like, yeah. other than their most recent matchup against Tampa Bay, their defensive conversion rate has just fallen off a cliff. Like, it is not good this year. They they have two good games against Tampa, and every other one is kind of, eh. Yeah, so I that, know. It's, it's not good. It's a real problem. I mean, at this point, do you favor Austin this weekend? I don't know yet. I still like the Hustle's talent so much, and you just see it at times. Like, they can punch with Carolina. They did it throughout a majority of that game on Saturday night, but it just felt almost inevitable that the same Carolina result was going to happen because of the way that their defense eats your legs. They take away your ability to remain consistent in your backfield handler sets, and they just make you sort of unstable at the point of attack where that that is how this Atlanta team is going to fall apart. You know, like they they don't have that lineup consistency to endure a defensive attack that Carolina presents. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see what they bring to Austin because they did have their home roster against Austin in that first meeting. And they were playing like at their most efficient level they've played at all season where they were just connecting on like every huck. It seemed like they went 14 of 17 in that first game against Austin. But that that was also a super close game for the majority until Atlanta opened it up down the stretch. So I, I don't know, in my mind, I mean, we'll, of course, get to this more on our preview episode of the weekend on Thursday. But this, this to me, is feeling more and more like Austin will get that second playoff seed. I really like that we're in the part of the season now where t- for teams like Atlanta, Austin, Indy, Madison, Philly, Boston, uh, Toronto, all of a sudden, uh, a couple of teams <laughs> yeah. out west, like every game is essentially a playoff game. Like they just cannot afford oh, to lose anymore. And so you just have it. these matchups that, you know, you hate boiling it down to every week, like do or die. It's a must win. But like, we're really yeah. at that point where it's true. <laughs> like, Indy winning at home against Pittsburgh was a virtual must win. And now they face yes. basically four more in a row. Like it's, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy the July month of the regular season. We're sure there's sort of the have and have nots. You have a lot of teams now kind of getting eliminated every week going forward. But on the other end, you, you have these, you know, five, six teams that are just battling for their lives. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's there's excitement in the playoff race in literally every division right now, which speaking, is all you could ask for. Speaking of, let's get to our final uh, recap sort of uh, big topic. Sorry, my brain's falling apart an hour into the podcast, but the DC yes. Breeze go on the road in week 10, get a 22-21 to 21 win over Philadelphia, snapping Phillies' four-game winning streak. Uh, it was... Maybe Philly's best game in years, but they just couldn't quite pull it out at the end. It felt like a game that Philly made DC play the Phoenix way. It was gritty. It wasn't exactly always what DC wanted, um, but 
DC kind of gets enough out of their defense to capture a big road win. They improved to five and two effectively looking like they're going to wrap up the two seed in the East. Meanwhile, Philly falls to four and four and enter into kind of the fray for third place in the East division. Again, Phoenix played really well, but as we were kind of worried about in this matchup, they just make a few too many of the kinds of errors you cannot make against a team like DC. Mm-hmm. And they there just... were, yeah, there were a couple James Pollard Huck throwaways. Yeah. Like with with as good of a game as he had, I just like wonder about those specific moments where they're taking shots that well, don't and... really make a ton of sense. And if you, yeah, if you can just like reel in a few turnovers per game, like they could be. Uh, much more competitive team in these games. Eight of 17 on Hucks, Philadelphia was. 47. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's perplexing, you know, in a game this tight. I know Philly wants to get in transition. They're a high-energy team. You saw late in that game when they got that uh, DC turnover near the goal line, and then Philly punched in a break to tie it Mm -hmm. and just erupted. Like, that, that... that represented Philly to me. You know, they're young. They're looking for their opportunity. If they can, they're going to quick strike on you and just seize a whole bunch of momentum. But sometimes they're overeager in doing so. And it just felt like that against DC, you know, like, and DC just did what they did against Toronto uh, a few weeks ago, which is that it doesn't feel like the game is in their control, but their offense is efficient enough where they're just going to carry a bunch of holds. Their defense is going to pressure and then run in transition and fast breaks. And they just cobble together enough where it's like, you know, they're, they're a really hard team to beat. Yeah. You just, you trust them more in those late game situations, even though like, yeah, that was a pretty big miscue. That one that went off Tyler Monroe's hand as he was laying out for it. And Philly was able to punch in that break to tie it up but yeah there's still an element of just like they play clean ultimate generally throughout the game and they had one i remember their one huck miscue they were six of seven on the game it was johnny malks just like attempted this early semi-early-ish huck maybe in the second quarter to i think it was musa jaw who was in double coverage and just like not open at all and like just philly ate that up and then from that point on, they did not miss a huck. Whereas Philly, on the other hand, yeah, you just look at that 8 for 17 number, and there were so many opportunities for them to just dial it back in and just play like a slightly cleaner, more possession-based version of Ultimate. And I think they could have escaped with a win in this one. I, but I, even with all those huck turnovers, I was extremely impressed with how Philly played in that yeah. game. Their, their D-line, I did not know was capable of a, a 6 of 9 conversion rate game like i i don't know if that was their best of the season but it's certainly up there and their offense like james pollard was unstoppable when he was getting downfield he was just having his way with whatever dc matchup was on him at the time he was unloading his hucks as he is one to do but i think more so as a downfield receiver in this game he was just lighting up the stat sheet two assists six goals over 400 receiving yards um they they had yeah they just like had dc's number in a few different matchups uh all game sean mott also played fantastic in that game and i i don't know i was i was very impressed with philly i didn't know they had this game in them but at the same time yes it it was dc that 
pulled it out down the stretch. And, you know, Philly is still maybe a step behind DC. And I, I do worry about Philly more going to DC this weekend as well, because there definitely is some Philly energy when they're playing at home as well. Well, and I think it kind of gets back to you name, you know, three players that sort of have standout games for Philly, but DC did a terrific job of limiting Philly's ability to find Greg Martin in the end zone. He only had two goals and 91 receiving yards against the Breeze defense, you know, taking away the thing Philly likes to do most, which is find Martin with the disc in the end zone. And, And again, it just... I don't like to boil things down to like the eyeball test and how they looked out there, but DC played loose the entire game and Philly very much seemed to visibly know that this was their game against DC and they were, they were going to win it at home and they were going to change the narrative, you know, like late mm-hmm. in game, there's an yeah. upline look to Greg Martin and it's just a little too far and he yeah. can't quite make the play. And it's just, when has Greg Martin never not been able to make the play, but it, it was emblematic of just how Philly tightens up in these kind of games. They just they don't have quite enough reps as this unit in a playoff type of environment. They were missing Jordan Ryan, who has been so important to their throwing attack this season. You know, there were there are just a couple of things working against Philly. And then on the flip side for DC, like Philly has three players have really good games. DC has seven. You know, Jacques Nissen in yeah, what his they always do. Second or third start of the year uh, probably has one of the the performances for the night for the Breeze. He finishes with three assists, four goals, over 600 yards of total offense, 40 completions. Resurgent Rowan is back, over 250 throwing and receiving yards, 553 total yards, 55 completions, four assists, a goal, a block. Johnny Malks looking like the coolest thrower in the division with the way he threw that game-winning assist by spying the clock behind him and then just yeah. gunning it into the end zone. So smooth. He makes it look so easy. You know, like, that's he one does. of the things that... It was a dart. He, he is not perturbed at any time. He's smiling, but he is a shark underneath of it. Like, when things tighten up, he gets better. And you could see that in the stretch for DC. Uh, but I think the two players I kind of want to center around and two players that we talked about hyping into the season and what would they add to this offense. And I think we thought that they would be more of deep options, but watching them play as connector pieces, I like them as the latter more. And that's Christian Boxley and Tyler Monroe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Every game now, it feels like you can just pen them in for over 300 yards, 20 to 30 touches, sometimes 50 plus for Monroe. And then just, always kind of being available in those intermediate continuation spaces as receivers that is so potent in this breeze offense, you know, Boxley finishes with five goals, Monroe finishes with four or excuse me, two goals, but four assists and a lot of red zone work and just small space uh, professionalism from both. I, I just really like the way in which the DC offense has this sort of, amoeba or like rhizomatic i don't know what it is like they just they have such a good ability to throw by throw point by point understand where the mismatch is and just attack that again and again and again and that's how players yeah. like boxley become so efficient how musa john now when he switches over to offense occasionally is a great receiving target for them like they just they know where their strengths are and they know exactly when to attack with them 
they do a really good job just with their offensive spacing in general. And they, they almost always have two guys in the backfield, but which two guys those are like Boxley and Monroe will find themselves in the backfield plenty throughout the, throughout the game. Like it's not, it's not that they have these go-to quarterbacks, like a Carolina type system where it's just those guys commanding the backfield and getting the disc to their cutters. This is so fluid. And I think that spacing of keeping only two guys back there allows them to better isolate guys downfield when they need to but also just having more options for continuation and motion looks throughout that offense i just think it's it's a very cool style of offense to watch and and pretty unique to dc i also think watching it it is going to be the most effective style to potentially defeat new york like i don't think you could have let's say like an Atlanta offense or even like a Colorado offense, I think at times against New York, I just don't think you can attack them in space the way that a lot of teams want to without running into the problem of you're now going against Ben Yacht or Gibran Mizir or Antoine or Marquez Brownlee or whoever they have roaming in space, able to get the (laughs) dispatch for the New York defense. Um, You know, I think that how DC has been going about their offensive strategizing and attack and implementation has been really, really smart, uh, both on like a player level as well as what obviously the coaching staff headed by Daryl Stanley is doing, you know, like just watching it week in, week out and being able to just kind of chew through whatever defense is in front of it and put up 24 plus goals. You know, what is what is the DC? scoring ranked right now are they still top three they're they're fourth they're they're averaging 23.9 scores per game and i think that's so emblematic of their offense the past two seasons you know they're second in offensive efficiency this season they were second last season weren't they um they just continue to sorry they were fourth last season Still over season. over sixty percent now in back to back years, which is they're they're completing they're completing the highest percentage of throws of any team in the league this year. They actually have under one hundred turnovers as a team. They're the only team in the league this year with that. Uh, obviously, that's kind of a reflection of other things, but they're also the league leaders in turnovers per game, or fewest turnovers per game. Like what watching the the product on field and then seeing this output in the statistical databases, it just makes so much sense when you watch DC and what they do. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so intuitive. I'm I'm curious what your biggest takeaway is from this game. Like, is this, is this a bit of a, a red flag for DC that like, it's now the second time with the, the Toronto game being the first where like, we thought they'd be, they should be just heavily favored heading into this game, and they, they've just let their opponent hang around, whether it's just not making enough plays defensively or their offense making a handful of mistakes. Is it is it DC maybe not being as good as we thought they are, or is it Philly being a lot better or just able to play in these tight games extremely well? I think it's more towards the latter end and I'm going to suspend my answer until after this weekend, because I know we said that (laughs) there was the potential for DC to win uh, comfortably this past Friday. And obviously that didn't happen. Philly played a great game at home. I think that there was a chance that Philly found that galvanizing energy at home. And I want to see if they can replicate that on the road. Cause I think 
that's the real hallmark of a team that can contend with either a DC or New York. How do you play at DC and at New York? How does your travel roster play? Because you're not going to get a home game against DC and New York this year. You know, like that went out the window with the loss essentially on Friday, unless they reverse right. it this weekend. But I, I kind of expect DC to, you know, at this point, adjust, figure out maybe what they did wrong, limit a few of the mistakes that they had that were kind of uncharacteristic, like that late game turnover and maybe win comfortably again this weekend. Like, I think for me, I was more impressed with just Philly's ability to play up to the moment last Friday night and show that they Mm -hmm. could trade punches with DC rather than thinking that there's anything wrong with DC. Like, I think being in close games happens, even to very good teams. I think just the ability to win is oftentimes a hallmark of a good team. And I think that there's plenty of examples of that over the past couple of seasons in this league. Like one of the ones that comes to mind is the San Diego Growlers, you know, like they won two straight West division championships, not always winning the cleanest games, but just by winning in the West division. And I think right now in the East for DC's sort of uh, rotating lineups at times, like it's just good for them to sort of show that they're in, uh, undoubtedly the number two seed right now. You know, they're going to yeah, take talent. Teams are going to come and run at them, especially because I think New York has kind of moved into this almost untouchable realm. I think it's almost put a little bit of a bigger target on DC's back where it's like, hey, we're, we might not get our shot against New York this year. We need to take a run at DC if we're going to knock off one of these higher teams in the East Division. Right. Right. I, I think DC, I mean, this might follow a similar a similar formula to what we saw with Toronto, where DC plays the super tight game with Toronto, but ultimately pulls out the win on the road, and then they host Toronto and they win by 10. I don't know if they'll beat Philly by 10, but I do think there was uh, some element of, of Philly magic happening. And, and just the, yeah, playing up to the moment, like you said, like that was that was a huge game for Philly and they wanted that game and they wanted that win. Uh, I think there's just going to be a slightly different mindset entering game two in DC. Yeah. I I just think that Philly did a really good job this past Friday of again, playing their style. It felt like at times it was Philly's game to lose just because of the tempo, the freneticness Pollard playing so good in transition, Mm -hmm. same with Sean Mott. Like it, it felt like, even when they made mistakes on offense, they could win the disc back. Like it was hard for DC's defense maybe to get some breaks. But then in the second half, it just felt like DC's depth and sort of, uh, I think, team conditioning won out as it usually does, where they they get those couple of uh, Brandon Lamberty hucks to Alexander Fall running in space, where it's just right, right. so demoralizing. Like they're so good at kind of doing this jack-in-the-box effect uh, turnovers, DC's defense, where they just, they run on you. They dunk on you. They, they want to take that momentum really quickly on you. It's, it's a sign of a strong D line. And yeah, they've, they've shown that throughout the year, even though their, their defensive numbers haven't always reflected that. I, I don't know. I'm still, I mean, we got a very strong defensive game from them against Toronto. I guess I'm still waiting for like a statement defensive game against a really good team in this division. So maybe we see that this Friday. So that'll kind of do it for our larger recaps, but we also wanted to touch on Montreal's results from the weekend and kind of the chaos it unlocks in the East. It, it couples with the Philly loss, but with the Royale losing 29 to 14 
at New York on Friday night and then losing the second game of their uh, road trip, 23 to 16 to Boston on Saturday. New York now, or excuse me, Montreal now sits at four and six. Uh, they remember they were three and oh and four and one at one point, uh, but they've lost now their last three in a row. Uh, they sit in fifth place. Boston, with their win over Montreal, moves into fourth place just behind Philadelphia. Philadelphia is four and four. Boston is four and six. Montreal is four and six. And Toronto, with their win against Ottawa in week 10, now sit at four and seven. And if they win their final game and something just weird happens with Philadelphia (laughs) at Toronto, Toronto. The Rush could potentially hold tiebreaker advantages against the Royale and Glory, I think. Correct? Correct me if I'm wrong. And Wait, could, say that again? They could potentially end up in like a four-way tie for five and seven in Toronto. There is some possibilities where they could make the playoffs. I think so. I It gets confusing because when a bunch it's, of teams are tied, it goes to... Weird. Yeah, it goes to... I think it goes to like head-to-head record against the teams involved right basically but it's cumulative like it's yeah it's cumulative and yeah that's probably a little more math than i I would like to do right now but in theory yes (laughs) toronto could finish with the third best record in the east division it's just kind of crazy how after new york and dc it really kind of is almost any team's ability to play the most complete game after that. Like Ottawa at one and seven has battled with every other team in this division, aside from DC and New York. You know, I think they have a one goal loss against Philly, Boston, Montreal, and Toronto. Um, It, what do you think it's going to come down to for this third seed? It it feels like it's the Phoenixes to lose, but given how topsy turvy this, third seed race has been you know it started with boston looking like they might take it in the preseason that wasn't the case montreal starts off strong they've been fading philly now looks like they're in the driver's seat for it but who knows (laughs) man if if toronto made the playoffs somehow that would be incredible i mean it like a lot is riding on i'm just looking at philly's remaining games they're playing at dc this weekend but then they go to toronto before hosting New York and then hosting Ottawa in the last game of the season. Like, of those four remaining games, I would say their last game hosting Ottawa is the most of, like, a a, a game I, I suspect they they should win or could win fairly easily. The rest of these games, like, I, I would say there's no guarantee they'll beat D.C. this weekend. And then going to Toronto, we've seen Toronto, like, be one of the better teams at home just uh, notably with how they played against dc and they've just been punchy this year and i I don't even know who i would favor i don't even know who i would favor in that game between philly at toronto so if philly did lose their next three games and their only other win came against ottawa this season that would put them at five and seven and then boston has to play dc and new york montreal has to play Ottawa this Thursday, and then they finished with DC. So I don't know. It's seeming like a decently realistic chance that there is, that there are four teams that all finish, or maybe three teams. I don't know if Boston can get to five and seven playing against DC and New York, but you never know what roster they're bringing. I mean, at this point, it, I would say it's it's maybe like a 
30 to 40% chance I would put it at just off the top of my head that there's a, a multi-way tie at five and seven in this division. But Philly should, I, I think they should win that game at Toronto. And if they can win that game at Toronto and beat Ottawa at home, I think they will be set for the third seed. Toronto is by no means playing efficiently right now, but they are playing confidently. No. Like they, they have that, that young oh, yeah. buck energy where when James Lewis is feeling it in space and they're just sort of getting into their transition attack, like they can surprise some people. And I think that they showed that against DC. I think that they've shown that against the other Canadian teams this season. You know, it, it sort of feels like at this point, like, of the three Canadian teams right now, Toronto's playing the best of them. And that's, that's surprising given how, you know, they turned over (laughs) 95% of their roster entering the season. You know, it's a kudos to where the rush are at right now. All of their veterans are playing well in their roles. And then just every week right now, it feels like the inverse of what was happening at the beginning of the year where the young guys weren't quite sure themselves. You know, there was some errors across the board as there was just a, a sort of lowered morale now with their confidence, it's like you have Eli Park all of a sudden having his best game as a young rookie against Ottawa in Week 10. Uh, before that, you have big performances from Travis Puckrin and other sort of role players in this rush lineup that are getting their first chances at the professional level in 2022. Like It's, it's fun to see Toronto sort of reverse their fortunes just from some good old-fashioned internal belief. Just, just yeah, I, feeling themselves, you know, like they're they're the same players we saw back in April and May, but they're all of a sudden just playing with a a vigor that they didn't have, and they look like different players. I am a hundred percent rooting for them at this point to somehow sneak into the playoffs, even if it's not mathematically possible, which we got we would have to go through all of the all of the head to head records, and we haven't had time for that, but some point this week maybe i'll go through and, and sketch that out i i think if toronto made the playoffs that would just be we've we've been saying this whole season has been chalk it's been pretty predictable but i think that would be that would be enough of a wrinkle for me to really uh, view this as a fun unpredictable season well and it would keep their playoff streak alive you know they were <laughs> right. perennial playoff contenders from their inaugural season in 2013 through 2019 obviously 2020 and then the Canada Cup season of 2021 removed them from the formal AUDL playoff bracket. So they're still in contention, I think, technically to keep their playoff streak alive. And yeah, I think this young rush team somehow backdooring its way into the third seed as the rest of the opportunities collapse for Boston, Montreal, and Philadelphia, that would that would be a pretty thrilling way to conclude the 2022 regular season but we will get into more previews for week 11 in just two days as we now wrap up our week 10 recap episode here on swing pass thank you all for tuning in we'll be back on thursday again to preview the upcoming action thank you so much we'll talk to you soon bye